0: Please help me welcome Pastor Steve. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. Thank you, Carol. I, before we get into this session today, I want to go back to yesterday's session, and I want to say one thing. When I presented two ways to have a devotional Bible study, remember yesterday? I, a lot has happened since then. Um, I talked about the road, read, observe, ask, and do. And I talked about soap, remember that? Scripture, observation, application, prayer. Uh, Deborah and I were talking after that, and she reminded me that, you know, for you guys um, to spend time, we spent 15 minutes on that text Writing down at least ten observations and ten questions. Deborah reminded me that often for new believers you're discipling. Soap is a much better introductory method to getting in the Word because you can do that in five minutes. And a lot of times new believers are not going to take the time to do what we did yesterday. We, you know, we we hope every new believer will spend two hours in the Bible a day, but it's not going to happen. <clears throat> okay, so. I just, just wanted to say that. I, I, I rushed through the soap method, but when you're discipling brand new Christians, that might be the preferred way to go. And even in my devotional time, I bounce back and forth depending on what text I'm reading and what I'm looking at that day. And you can make up your own. I actually love the gap that uh, Chris talked about yesterday. I used it, and I changed some of what I'm saying tonight because of that. I went back, and I thought about the geography, and I thought about the action, and I thought about the people And it actually changed what I'm preaching tonight hopefully for the better if not Chris it's your fault I'll never take your advice again but I think it was an upgrade in fact I I I laid in bed last night I I don't know when you I don't know you preachers will know how this is when you get so deep in a text you go to bed thinking about it you're kind of dreaming about it sometimes you're not sure if you're asleep or awake but you're reliving it I was feeding the 5,000 last I wasn't feeding them I was eating I was picking up 12 baskets full, and I stopped before I go preach the nice message. But, but um, I, I, I got, uh, and you helped me, Chris. You helped me yesterday. So the gap, fill in the gap. All right. And um, um, David and Caroline, um, you guys are just, um, you guys are Christians. I don't know what I am sometimes. I think I am until I get around you. And, you know, all right, they're real Christians. I'm not sure about the rest of us. <laughs> i i'm I'm inspired by your law- i'm i'm convicted honestly every time i get around you I'm convicted and i'm inspired i'm provoked um, i i just appreciate your heart for it. what were the the big five you said what what, what give me that list again wow that's yeah we are gonna borrow that <laughs> but i got to get that in my heart first I can't preach that yet uh, really i can't um see a lot of us just go preach that, I've got to go do that I appreciate that, and I I appreciate what this church does, this church movement you guys have always been uh, whatever church I go to, whether I go to Potch and I talk to Willem, or whether I'm with Philip, or whether I'm with Carlton, or Roger or any, whatever it is every one of your churches, there's such a heart for what he's saying, and there's so many different ways that manifest and so many people being helped to the honor of God, and I, I appreciate that about uh, these, your churches in South Africa, and well, uh, beyond too, but we're, we're here in South Africa. And um, uh, I've gotten to visit some of the, I know in, in, in Somerset West, Frank toured me around a number of years ago, some of the things that were going on there, and I was just provoked. And, and I just walked away going, this pleases God, really honors God. And um, so I commend you. Um, yesterday, I had the privilege of spending the afternoon with the campus missionaries, If you're a campus missionary, would you stand up? Campus missionary, would you stand up? All right, listen, don't, don't. we just usually automatically clap when people stand. Just wait a minute. These are some amazing people, and this is, you know, we, the phrase that, actually Chris said the phrase, I don't know if Chris knew where it came from, but you may have heard it from me or others, because I use it like I made it up, but I learned from you guys the phrase, one foot in the community, one foot on the campus, and I preach that all over the world and you are one of the feet okay you're not a toe you're one of the two feet we have Uh, this ministry stands on two feet one foots in the community and one foots on the campus and what you do on the campus is just as important as what's going on in the community and i commend you and i honor you and i thank you for what you're doing can we give these campus missionaries a big hand Chris, i got a whole lot of pulpit talk going on here. Don't tell Dr. Ward, but this isn't a sermon, so I can do it. <laughs> um, and again, I do want to say for the preachers, I do want you to hear this, and I'm not being funny here. I am not preaching today. This is a lecture, and there's a difference. I'm going to preach tonight. That will be a sermon, and I'll, you'll see the difference. And some, some of us who do this, sometimes we don't know the difference And a conference and a worship service. I'm going to pretend like tonight's a worship service, like it's a Sunday service, uh, because we're talking about preaching the word, and so uh, I want to, and Chris did that a great job the other night, and Manny last night, and Bishop Manny, thank you. I I was, I I felt terrible. I had to leave. I had some throat issues, and I'm trusting that I'm going to get through this one today, because at four o'clock in the morning, I was Sometimes we're woken up by the Lord. I, w- I was waking up by the devil last night at 4 o'clock, coughing with an uncontrollable coughing, and I woke up Deborah. And, and uh, <clears throat> so, hopefully, we're going to get through this one today. But I, had, I was sat in the back and listened, and, and Manny, I, I was inspired remembering many of those stories. I had forgotten about, I think it was Princess, uh, that story about, uh, wow, when that prayed for a father she had never met, and within, I think it was within two weeks, a knock on the door looked at this twenty something year old girl and said, Hi, I'm your father. And uh I we lived those stories. Uh and I just I was inspired. Thank you for remi- I've forgotten so many things God has done. I've forgotten so many amazing things God has done in answer to our prayers. And Manny, thank you for the reminder. That was that was that was strong. And um I was, I was thinking about that as Bishop Manny was preaching last night, how uh I remember many, many years ago I did a study of the book of Acts and I came to the conclusion that um, prayer is not what made the church grow it wasn't prayer I studied it thinking that I studied every time they prayed in Acts and I studied every prayer meeting and I came to the conclusion that it was not prayer it was answers to prayer it was when God answered the prayer then thousands of people would get saved every time but if we pray prayers that don't get past the ceiling, we can sit in here and yell and scream and act like people at the you know the prophets of Baal on the mountain. If God doesn't answer them, nothing's gonna happen. Or we can pray a five minute prayer that God answers and then the whole community comes to Christ. Now I'm not saying trade in your all night prayer meetings for five minutes, but I'm just saying the point is the answer. When God answers, that's when communities are changed. So, But, of course, you don't get an answer unless you pray. But, again, it's not prayer does not cause revival or churches to grow. It's the answer that God gives. So here's the point. It's not what we do. It's what God does. We can do what we do all day long, and it'll do nothing. It's only when God steps in. And so that's why it's the answer, because that's what God does. It's not the prayer. That's what we do so whatever good happens it's never what we do it's always what he does so anyway thank you for that when you were going through answer after answer man he wasn't talking about the prayer meetings and some of those things were the result of long prayer some were short prayers but it was what God did when his people pray and don't ever forget because if it's because of prayer then we get proud if it's because of what how God answers our prayer, then we are nothing and he gets all the glory. And that's how we want to live. So I believe in prayer, but more than that, I believe in answers. Okay? All right. I don't want to re-preach that. You did such a good job. I'm, let me leave it alone. All right. I said, this is, uh, this is a training and a lecture and, uh, and, 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 and sort of a precursor to what I'm going to talk about today. Um, you know, let me do this. I, I, I put a note here. Um, I, I don't think we're going to do it and I haven't done it. I want to give you, um, can you throw that first picture up there? I want to give an update on my family. Let me give you this real quickly. Because um, I've, I've been going around the world for years um, uh, introducing my family and I've had a, um, uh, my son with the beard has always, i presented and said I have one single son. I have one still available but I just want to take him off the market. He's not available so I just wanted to give that update. So broken hearts all over the every-nation world. <laughs> um, this was a couple of months ago. This is in Dominican Republic, a family vacation, and uh, uh, my, my wife, Deborah, who's there and here, uh, on the one, let's see, on your left, William is my oldest son. He's, a uni- he's finishing his Ph.D. in Islamic history and lecturing on uh, Islamic history at Vanderbilt University. He's a year away from finishing, and... Um, he co-wrote um, The Multiplication Challenge with me. He's a brilliant writer and a brilliant uh, communicator. His wife, Rachel, is my assistant, and um, two grandchildren, uh, Josephine and Liam. And uh, then Jonathan, my youngest son, in the middle with the black shirt, his wife, Mariah. Uh, they don't have children yet, but hopefully by this time next year, they will. And. Um, <laughs> And then James is engaged to Erica. Erica is the worship leader of Every Nation Church in Yokohama. She was born and raised in Tokyo. She is, uh, her brother is our national director of campus ministries in Japan. And uh, she's half Japanese and half Colombian. Her mother's Colombian, her father's Japanese. And lived her whole life in Japan and spent the summers in Colombia. And so that's an every nation family right there. I've got a Filipino daughter-in-law and soon-to-be Colombian Japanese. All right. So, um, and I will say this: um, my two, William and Jonathan, found their wives in every nation campus. Okay. So for no other reason, uh, Get People is a great place to find a wife. Great place to find a husband better than looking in the bars. <laughs> so that's where my sons found their wives. And then James, who uh, he's, uh, what is he, 28. So he only met Erica a year ago at a worship writer's workshop. And he had never met her. I've known her for years because of ministering at our church in, in Japan. And he met her. And uh, and within a week, they were chatting and texting. And then uh, he he invited her to attend nashville the recording of doxology and uh he said look why don't you i'm gonna buy you a ticket fly over here let's hang out and if it gets weird then you can hang out with isa and all the other people and i'll leave you alone and fortunately they fell in love there at a worship recording and uh so they're getting married june 24th and pastor scott our pastor in japan is still bitter and angry with me that my son, I said, Scott, I had nothing to do with this. You get mad at James yeah, that he's stealing the worship leader. So, uh, but we're praying that Scott will come to a place of forgiveness and see this as a sowing, uh, not as a, a, a just a loss. But uh, we're, 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 really, we're really fortunate, really really blessed and, um, to have three godly sons married to three godly, very uh, God-serving Daughter-in-laws, and um, so we're thankful. All right, um, let's go. Um, four pillars of a healthy every nation church—really any church—but let's just talk about our churches. Four, four essential parts, and this is the precursor to what I want to talk about. Um, can I get time cards? I am completely lost on when I started and when I finished. So, can somebody hold up some, some, some of those things? Um, <clears throat> yeah, just, just keep me, keep me. Somebody give me sign languages. Start throwing things. (laughs) Four pillars of a healthy church. Um, Relational discipleship culture. This is not going to be on the screen. Relational discipleship culture. We all know that. If you're going to have a healthy church, you need to have a relational discipleship culture. You could have a discipleship process, but if it's not relational and it's not a culture, it's just a program, it's not healthy. So every one of those words are important. Relational discipleship culture. Not A mechanical impersonal discipleship class not a legalistic discipleship program a relational discipleship culture is essential for a healthy church secondly an empowering leadership structure I know we love to think that leadership is organic but it's not the word leadership implies a structure and it needs to be empowering if it's not empowering it becomes just an a broken top-down dictatorship but an empowering structure is what we're after thirdly a global mission vision you have flags hanging in your ceiling they're not just to get more color in here to be decorative it's because we are called to the nations you are now called every nation, but you're also called to every nation. And if that just becomes a name on a, on a letterhead and a website, then let's just change it back to one nation. Let's just call ourselves our nation or this nation. We are called to every nation and tribe and people and tongue, and you're doing a great job of that. You really are. You're doing a great job. But the one I want to talk about today is the fourth one. It's not in order of priority. Just the order I scribbled these down. It's biblical worship theology. As much as we need a relational discipleship culture, an empowering leadership structure, and a global mission vision to be healthy, we also need a biblical worship theology. And that's what I want to talk about today. This is a spirit and word, or a word and spirit. I forgot how we said it. Okay, Word and Spirit Conference, and I actually decided to do this yesterday. Um, I, I, I was going to do something else today, but after some of the things that we've have been happening here, it's been great, and I thought, let me, I'm, I want to just maybe talk about the idea of the big picture of worship from a holistic view and from a biblical theological perspective of what worship is, and where is the role of the Word in that. So this is still the Word and Spirit, but I want to... Paint a big picture of worship, and then let's see where the preaching of the word, how that is a practically a part of worship, and how it should be. Um, and I do want to say this: my Deborah and I were talking last night, and um, she made comment something to the effect of this: how much she has enjoyed the music part of our worship together. And and this doesn't matter which band is up here. I know it's been different bands from different of your churches, and it's just been. Not just talented and tight. You know, she made a couple of comments. She said, you know what? They're so talented and so good, but nobody's performing. There's a big difference in performance and worship. Because performance gets people to look at us. Worship gets people to look at God. And then we started talking, and she said, you know what? She said, I really appreciate Belinda, because I know a lot of it's been Belinda training people. And not just Belinda. There are others, but she's she's... I don't know if I can say this inside, she's, she's the, uh, well, I was about to say the godfather, but she's not a father, but, <laughs> but, but, but um, she's, and I, and I appreciate that, and Deborah and I were talking about that last night, and how, how you guys have been so anointed and so invisible, and I really appreciate that, we honor you for that, it's been great, so it's been a privilege. <clears throat> All right, public worship, public worship. I'm not talking about private worship. We talked about your devotional life yesterday, the word part of it. Certainly there's a prayer part of devotional life. There's public prayer and there's private prayer. There's, um, there's Bible study in a group and there's personal devotional reading of the word that's between you and God. And again, there's worship. There's public worship and there's private worship. But I'm talking about public worship in, in the context today. So I, this is no bearing On whatever you do in your private worship time and they are entirely different things okay so I want you to understand public worship Um, some of you have heard me talk about bits and pieces of this if you were at an IET meeting or an RLT meeting in different contexts so these are sort of cut and pasted from different things some of you may have not have heard any of this Um, Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard Referred to public worship as the theater of worship. And seeing public worship as theater invites us to identify the stage, the performers, the director, and the audience. So we think about the theater of worship using Kierkegaard's view in his, his sort of illustration of worship... Now, we have these components. For most modern churches, the stage is literally a stage like the one I'm standing on. Sometimes they're larger, sometimes they're smaller, sometimes they're higher or lower. Sometimes they're built for theater productions and massive uh, things and all that. Sometimes they're very minimalist. The performers are typically the people on the stage, everyone who touches a mic, the preacher. The musicians, the singers, the worship leaders, the maybe someone comes up and takes the offering and maybe someone comes up and gives a prophetic word and maybe maybe sometimes there are other people coming and going, but that becomes the performers. The director is typically the senior pastor in larger churches. Maybe there's an executive pastor in really large churches. Maybe there's a stage manager. In Manila, we have stage managers. There's, we have so many services. We typically, most of our centers, we have on Sunday, 8, 10, 12, 2, 4, 6, 8. And so if one of those goes over time, the dominoes fall, and it's a disaster for thousands of people. And so in our, uh, I don't know, 30-some locations around Metro Manila, that's pretty typical Sunday. Some of them get really creative and go 9, 11, 1, 3, 5, and 7. <laughs> the odd people. The creatives, yeah. (laughs) Um, So we have stage managers. Um, The audience is typically in modern worship context, congregation, but that is not what Kierkegaard thought. His thinking when he said theater of worship was very different than that. When he talked about theater of worship, his stage was not this. He would draw a circle around the entire building that we're in, and say, this is the stage where worship happens. So the usher out there was worshiping. And what happens in the lobby is worship. And everything that goes on in that Sunday worship service or Saturday or Friday or whenever it is, everything that happens in this, on this stage, that's what this is. This is not the stage. This is all the stage from the front pew to the back pew, and even if you don't have chairs or pews and you're sitting on the ground, this is the stage. Kierkegaard also said the performers, therefore, are everyone who steps on the stage. Not just the performers here, but every one of us out there. We're part of the worship performance. Whether we're teaching kids' church, whether we're stacking chairs or working in the parking lot, whether we're handing out Things at the door, or whatever it is we're doing at the sound booth or the video, or we're the person who came broken and hurt and barely got to church that day. That's the performers. The director of Kierkegaard would say is the Holy Spirit. And the audience, the audience for all of this is God. And every one of us are here. We're not the audience out there. But see, modern worship, we come and we think, we sit out there and we go, eh, I don't like that song. We're like people watching musical theater on Broadway. We like it or don't. We engage if we like it. We don't engage if we don't like it. If somebody misses or no, we're out there. That's what modern worship is. Because we think this is the stage and we're the audience. But when we take Kierkegaard's view, which is really the biblical theological view, it doesn't matter if we like that song or not. The question is, am I worshiping God? It doesn't matter if I like that preacher or not. That preacher's doing his or her part of worship to God. Am I doing my part? Or have I become the critic and the audience rather than the participant? And So I'm trying to paint a picture of a bigger picture, maybe a more theologically broad picture of what worship is. And specifically, I want to focus in on what the preaching part of that is. I'll do a few other things too. Um, I want to expand Kierkegaard's stage a little bit beyond the church building to include all of life. Sunday through Saturday, secular and sacred, at office, at home, all of life. We've talked about vocabulary to um, discuss discipleship, and, and, and I think you guys use the same vocabulary. What do we mean by discipleship? What are we doing? We're talking about engaging with the gospel, establishing foundations, equipping people to do ministry, and empowering disciples to make disciples. So it's not just the pastors doing the work. It's everybody. So it's engage, establish, equip, power. In the multiplication challenge, my son and I presented vocabulary to talk about leadership in our context, identifying Instructing, impartation, and internship. I want to throw out some vocabulary to help us talk about worship beyond the singing part of Sunday. And um, it's right now five S's, but it's evolving this morning into six, but I'm not going to go there. I've got to develop that. And these are parts of worship. Singing, sermons, sacraments service and sacrifice. I want to talk through those and specifically focus on the sermon part today. There's been a lot of writing and teaching and development of the singing part of worship and I commented on that earlier. My wife and I have been very moved by the singing part of our worship here this week and you guys, you guys do great with that. You really do and you're I was telling uh, several of you. I was, I, th- I think I told Pierre and Brian. I told Longa. I told uh, Belinda this morning that. And before and after, anytime we have conferences in Manila, we have things all the time. I mean, there's always something going on. That that, and and but what we do before and after, the space, the time before the meeting, 15 minutes, and after the meeting, and during breaks, what's on the screen are videos, Every Nation music videos, and so sometimes like that oil song we've been singing, I think there's a video on that shot on a rooftop, our people all know that, because they've seen that video, they've seen the new one, I I told Pierre, I told Brian or Pierre, I don't understand videos, but I love the music, the drum and the flags and all that, I love the song, I don't, I usually don't get videos, but we play that all the time, and we play your stuff, and we play uh, We Will Worship, and we play Wholehearted, and we play Freedom Band, and we, and we do, um, from Mid-Cities Church, and we do videos from some of the Victory videos, and we do videos from everyone we can get, and so when people come in our church, they're seeing worship happening all over the world within our family, and often they'll come and go, what was that song? We need to do that, one. then they're going to YouTube, and they're finding it, so you guys do great with the singing part, so I'm going to skip over that. We're not going to even talk about that when you do, well, we do so well, but oh, no, actually I am. I wrote this this morning. Here we go. Ah, Sorry, this is this is fresh (laughs) This is the first time I've ever said some of this so maybe the last time (laughs) I Want to talk for a minute about modern trends in worship music versus historical patterns Modern trends in our generation versus the last 2,000 years of church history Um, And this is some of it's good some of it's not Some of it's helpful some of it's terrible I've just got three thoughts, four thoughts on, um, first one is modern trend of f- songs that are first-person pronouns, when historically most, not all, but most, the vast majority of worship music throughout most of history until our generation has been, has been second-person pronouns. It's also been plural versus Singular. In other words, most, throughout, most songs throughout church history were we, not I. Why? Because worship is a corporate exercise. Now, that's not to say, don't get upset if there's a song we sing later on and it's first person and it's singular. Don't get upset if we, so, because there have been those sprinkled out throughout church history, but that's been the exception, not the rule. And so when we're singing together, We like to sing we, not I. That's not exclusive. It's just what has been the tilt of history. But modern worship with the individualism, mainly in the West, that's now affected the whole world. Where worship is just about me and God. And that's not what corporate worship is. Corporate worship is about us and God. in a spiritual community. Worshiping together, which is why I'll get on one of my soapboxes, which is why I always ask people, why do you turn the lights off during worship? It used to be because the resolution on the projectors were so low you couldn't see them. That's not the case anymore. People have LED screens. You don't need to turn the lights off. But I have a hard time worshiping community when I can't see anybody else. Worship is something we do together. But we privatize it by making it dark, and we privatize it by having the sound so loud that we can't hear the people singing around us. It's supposed to be corporate. It's supposed to be a community coming together. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have private worship. You should. I am talking today about when we gather to worship. I I, I think most of our songs should be we, not I. Not all of them, but most. We should be able to hear one another and see one another. I'm an advocate for worshiping with your eyes open because we're doing it together, all right? So it's, it's that individual versus the community. It's not either or, it's both, but the emphasis throughout history has been the corporate, not the individual. Secondly, singing to God, which is a modern idea versus singing about God which has been what the church has done historically again if you listen to ancient hymns and songs that were written before iTunes you'll find most of them not all most of them were about God not to God Um, and point number three will tell you why it's changed it has changed. Sometimes I think it's a good change. Sometimes I think it is a terrible change. But I just want you to be aware that it's changed. Okay. Um, we sing songs to God today. And all throughout history, there have been some, but not most. Now it's most. Almost all songs today um, are, are we're singing to God. Historically, the church, even the book of Psalms primarily, were songs about God about God's nature, about God's character, about God's work, about the gospel in redemption. Even in Psalms, the gospel's there. Didn't didn't call it the gospel, but it's there. Occasionally, one will bounce up that is not that, but it's it's prayed and sung to God. But primarily, it's about God. Corporate worship throughout all of history until our generation was the church coming together to proclaim the majesty of God. Now it has become coming together to sing directly to God. I'm not saying that's wrong and bad. I'm saying the emphasis has changed. After 2,000 years of church history, something has shifted in the last 50 years. And usually shifts are not altogether great things. Now the Reformation was pretty good, although there were some gaps. You know, it was pretty much all European and all white. And there was really not anything going on in missions for about 100 years. While Xavier was changing the world from Rome, the hubs of the Reformation, and look, I'm a Reformed person, but boy, I, the tragedy of the lack of mission that came out of the Reformation is sad. Uh, but, all right, let me not get there. So there's the singing to God versus singing about God. Again, I'm not saying you have to choose one of the other, I'm just saying historically, It's been primarily this with some of this. Now it's primarily this with some of this. It's been a massive shift. And the reason is probably this is going to be controversial. Okay, I know some people are going to get mad at me the moment I say this. And some people are going to misunderstand what I'm about to say. And I just understand that. So um, maybe we'll think about it. It's intimacy versus holiness. It's presence versus transcendence throughout most of history the focus of worship music has been the holiness and transcendence of god the modern focus is intimacy and presence i'm not saying that's theologically wrong but i question the balance and i don't know that the current balance is healthy for the church Again, this is not either or, this is healthy balance. Worship has primarily been about the transcendence of God. And when we focus on that, how great and majestic and big he is, we feel like nothing and then the gospel comes in and worship explodes. But when we skip the holiness and the transcendence and the majesty of God and go straight to grace, and we don't understand why we need grace, worship becomes self-absorbed and self-centered with this ever-deepening hunger for intimacy, which was a foreign concept or a fringe concept throughout most of the church history. Okay? I'll leave that there. Don't walk out saying I'm anti intimacy with God and anti presence. I'm saying that flows out of an encounter with His holiness and an appreciation of His transcendence. Because of His transcendence, the gospel is necessary for us to experience His presence. If we don't understand His transcendence, we go straight to His presence, we miss the gospel. And we misunderstand our need for grace. I know we can tilt too far on holiness and on transcendence, but that has been the pillar that the other flows out of. So, again, I'm saying both and, but what's the anchor? And this is not in response to anything we've experienced here. I'm talking about the modern church. And for the most part, I'm trying to describe, and I'm painting a big picture of the modern church. I'm not trying to correct something here. Okay, everybody got that? I think you're doing amazing. Okay. Roger, you're probably going to get some texts and emails about this, so blame it on me. And finally, the other trend is the emotional versus theological. Throughout church history, most worship music has been deeply theological in nature. Today, it's primarily emotional in nature with a lot of shallow theology, a lot of bad theology, and a lot of non-theology. And I'm saying the theology, the word theology simply means the study of God. And I think we have songs that come out of emotion rather than a study of God. And I'm an advocate that we bring back the study of God And the songs come out of a deep study of God, not something to prick our emotions. And if we study God, I remember one time, one of the, I'll never forget this. It was one of the most powerful moves of God in the 33-year history of victory in Manila. Manny, you might remember, you were brand new. You were probably a brand new believer. Bruce Fiddler came. We were in Anson Arcade. Our church was about 300 people. Bruce Fiddler, okay? Bruce is emotional today. He was a robot then. (laughs) When I say emotional, he smiled one time in the last 12 months. (laughs) Bruce did a two hour lecture on the Trinity on a Saturday afternoon. You remember that? When that was over, for probably 30 to 45 minutes after that, that whole room were on their face on the floor. Weeping and worshiping and repenting and singing after, you know why? It was theology. It was the study of God. And when we saw who God is, his majesty, his transcendence, his power, and that he loved us, there was nothing to do but to humble ourselves and throw ourselves at his feet. And it, I don't remember. Um, we've had moves of God there, but that to me was one of the, it was the least, it was, it was Bruce at his best. Two hours of the trinity in words most of us couldn't even pronounce or understand. But it was, we felt so amazed that that God loves us. He was so big and we saw, he didn't talk about sin, but the way he painted God, the transcendence of God, it was like, we're nothing, but he loves us anyway. It was powerful. It marked us. I long for Music that comes out of theology that comes out of a serious study of God And God's Word and then the artist put that to music and poetry and Melodies and instruments that move our emotions then but it's not moving our emotions by ignoring our head We engage God intellectually and that moves our emotions but when we only touch the emotions, it's very short-lived. Well, I thought I was going to do something else this morning. I'm not getting to the sermon part. All right. That, okay, that was singing as part of worship. Let's talk about the sermon as part of worship right now, okay? Here we go. Sermon as part of worship. Um, all right. When we see the sermon as worship, it has to become all about the text not about the audience not about the preacher oh, i hate it when people you know man, let me back that up i don't want to say i hate it let me be kind i'm, I'm bothered sometimes in multi-site churches in multi um in multi i'm gonna I don't know. Um, when people want to know which location in which service a certain preacher is preaching in and they follow a person instead of a message because in our churches in Manila, 30-something locations, hundred and something, 40 or so services on work. it's always the same text and the same sermon, but different preachers. No videos, all live or semi-live preachers. I think, I think they're all live. I can't tell sometimes. <laughs> but, but there's an element of people who will float around. And we, we, for years, when I was in Manila more, back and forth, I never, we never announced where I was preaching. I never wanted anybody to know which service, Where or when? Because I didn't want to attract a following to me. I wanted people coming to hear God, not me. I don't like it when the sermon's about the preacher. Um, It's about the text. When we see the sermon as worship, it's all about the text. It's all about God's word. It's not about the audience. It's not about the preacher. It's not about the style. Because listen, everyone who preaches, listen to me. People don't come to church to hear you. They come to hear God. And if they're coming to hear you, you're not building right. Boy, they're wasting their time if they come to church to hear me. It's a pitiful life. If they've got nothing better to do than come hear me, that is pitiful. But to come and hear a word from God, that's what preaching's about. What does it look like when we see the sermon as part of worship? That what happens then is the time battle between worship and preaching goes away. That wrestling of, well, we need more worship, or we need more preaching, or that that whole thing that's universal. When we see it all as worship, that battle, we're all fighting for the same thing. To have a worship service where from start to finish, We're focused on God, we're honoring God, we're worshiping God, we're hearing God. We're doing it together as a team. When we see the sermon as part of worship, then the way we hear the sermon, that's our worship to God. The way I preach the sermon, that's worship to God, and therefore I better not draw attention to myself. I better put the attention on him. If I'm giving a lecture or a speech or a performance, then I'm trying to get people to listen to me. But when I'm preaching a sermon, I'm trying to get people to hear God and remember what God said, not remember what I wore or my joke or what I said. What matters is they they hear and remember what God said to them. What it means is we see the sermon as part of worship is the music team needs to know the text and the topic that's going to be preached so they can, not that every song has to have the same message, but at least it doesn't need to be contrary. It needs to flow together to minister and speak something to those people. Let me talk about the text for a moment, about the text, and this is I, I don't, I, this is dangerous to say this because not everyone in this room preaches, and so I, far be it for any of us to take what I'm about to say and judge our pastor. Okay? Okay, that, Pastor James said I'm going to judge myself. Okay, that's valid. But this is not to give us ammunition to go, well, I knew my pastor was doing it wrong. <laughs> this is not right or wrong, okay? Let me talk about the introduction for a moment. If We see... The sermon is part of worship, here's my opinion. So this isn't a sermon right now, Chris, I can give my opinion. Tonight will be a sermon, I'll try to leave my opinion out of it. (laughs) Concerning the sermon introduction, shorter is always better. Have You ever seen those people that talk for 30 minutes and go, ah, that's just my introduction, now I'm gonna get to the message. Get to the text as fast as you can. Long introductions are rarely helpful, and they often become a distraction. Move all non-essential stories, words, ideas from the intro, and if those words and stories and ideas are essential to the message, plug them in somewhere else or use them next week. Preachers, a word from God for you. There's always next week. You don't have to say it all today. Less is more. Number two, first thought is intro. Second thought, read. Read while preaching, never speed read your text. When I'm listening to sermons, few things make me more irritated than a disrespectful speed reading of God's word. Speed-reading it, it's like, let's get that out of the way so I can say what I want to say. Respect the Word. Never speed-read it. Read the whole text with passion, pauses, emotion, energy, and emphasis. With no comments until you finish reading the whole text. Let the text speak. Approach the reading of the text as the most important part of the sermon, because it's the only part that's purely God's Word. Paul told Timothy to give attention to the public reading of God's Word. There is something powerful about the public reading of God's words. So let it have its effect don't short-circuit that don't short change that whether you're reading a long text or a short text Let that text deal with people's hearts Give attention to the public reading of the Word of God Word number three is text I keep using that word after reading the text preach the text Stay in the text. Go deep in the text. Make sure everything you say is coming from the text. Remember that life-changing power is in his word, not in your words. One of the six deadly sins of the pulpit is when preachers, and we've all done it, but fortunately mine are so far in the past, they're on tape, so you can't hear them. When you get a good story and go, I need to find a scripture for this one. Don't bother with the scripture. Just tell the story and call it a story. Don't call it a sermon. Because that's not a sermon. Sermon is preaching God's words. Not finding something you want to say and then abusing scripture to tag it on so you can spiritualize it. The text is not to validate your story. Your story is to illustrate the text. Preaching has to come out of the text, out of God's word. Next word, context. Context is important. You have to understand the context of the text, but... When people really get into context, they tend to bore their audience with trivial contextual facts that don't matter. We've all done that. When we got so excited about the geography and all this other stuff, and it's like it had nothing to do, we lost the point because we were explaining, you know, the, how olives are pressed. Because we just got back from REA's tour and we're just so, wow, the olive. Everybody's out there going, now they're all thinking about Italian dressing. Explaining some context is necessary, but resist the temptation to say everything you know and have recently studied about Middle Eastern food, geography, and religion. (laughs) Delete every contextual comment that does not directly contribute to your main point. Save it for next week. Word number five, we're talking about the sermon as part of worship. Word number five is heart. It is more important for people to catch God's heart about the topic and text you're preaching than to remember your points. If they catch God's heart, they will be transformed. If they only remember your points, well, they won't, so never mind. They won't remember your points. It doesn't matter how much time you spend alliterating and acrosticizing did I make up a word? The acrostification of sermons. Look, we need to communicate, as Chris said, in a way that people can listen. But if they catch the heart, they may not remember the details, but they got the spirit of it. I don't remember all the details that Manny said last night, but I remember about God answers prayer. Because I heard in the Word and I heard stories of God answering prayer. I can't recount his outline. And I can't remember the outline Chris gave us the other night, but boy, I want the glory of God. I want more of that, all right? I got the heart of what was preached. I've got some notes in my phone I'll probably never look at again, but I got the heart. So preach to the heart. And stories that are emotional can open up the heart. But again, if all we do is tug the emotions, but we don't have the word content, we've opened the emotions and have done temporary change. You open those emotions and then you bring theology in and truth and then it's permanent change. All right, word number six, love. Effective preaching requires more than a proper exegesis of the text. It also demands a proper exegesis of the culture and the community and the people we're trying to preach to. In other words, good preaching requires loving the people you're actually preaching to. I heard from a phenomenal communicator, a pastor a number of years ago. He said, I love everything about the ministry but the people. So I didn't have to deal with those people. He had a big church. He's a great speaker. You know today, it's a tiny church he has. Because eventually, people don't care what you say. What's that thing they, they don't? You say they, they don't care what you know unless they know that you care. Eventually people figured out he doesn't really care. He just likes to communicate and he's great at it. But it's love. It really helps if you actually care about those people. Okay. Don't preach until you're, certainly, until you're certain you know those people and you actually care about them. Preaching is supposed to be a speaking the truth in love. Therefore love is kind of a big deal. You may not like them all, but you've got to have love for them. And sometimes when we're angry and we end up beating people instead of feeding them, we've got to check, I gotta get, I, I've got to extend the love of God for people. It doesn't mean every sermon's on love, but our heart has to have a heart of love. Action. When we want to move people to action, not every sermon is designed to move people to action, but some are. When you're trying to move people to action, especially evangelistic action, it is so much better to emphasize what Christ did for us rather than what we're supposed to do for him. Carol did a great job of that yesterday, I think. Um, Chris and Manny and I have a homiletics professor. I was on a conference call with him a few months ago because we're flying him to Manila to train our pastors. Chris, Dr. Ward said on that phone, Manny, I don't know if you were on that conference call or not we were talking to him, but he... He said this, I I wrote it down, I quoted it. He said, Dr. Ward said this, preachers either guilt or gospel people to action. And I just wrote another comment. I said, since most church people are already so guilty, I'm going to try my best not to add to that. I'm going to try my best to gospel them to action. What do you mean? We all know how to guilt people into action, right? But how do you gospel them into action? By talking about what Jesus did for us not what we do for him. Okay? Simon, I have no idea where we are on time. All right. Um, Finally, last word, audience. When God is our ultimate audience, when we see preaching, hearing preaching, developing preaching, delivering a sermon as a part of worship, then God is our audience. We preach to honor him. We don't preach to please the bishop The apostle, the senior pastor, the hub leader, the first-time visitor, the biggest tither, or the know-it-all blogger critic who happened to walk in that day. The best preaching is done to please God, even if nobody else is pleased. Preaching to please God, that's what worship is. God, this is for you. our eyes are on him and therefore when we know we have a word from God and a heart of love and we know it's going to offend the biggest tithers so be it so be it and if we know that first time visitors are not going to like it as long as God likes it I'm okay with that All right, let me go to the last few thoughts so we're talking about a Uh, the theater of worship, and maybe a bigger picture of worship. We talked about singing as part of worship. Remember that about three hours ago? (laughs) We talked about sermon as part of worship. Very briefly, let me touch on sacrament as part of worship. Um, Our stream of churches that came out of the Reformation see two sacraments that are biblical, the sacrament of water baptism and the sacrament of communion. Um sacraments were seen by our wing of the church as a means of grace a means to an end the sacraments are a means the end is grace it's a means of experiencing God's grace in a real and tangible way communion engages every part of us we're hearing the word it engages our ears we're, we're, we're tasting the wine and the bread and it's engaging our our our, our tongues, it's engaging our stomachs, it's engaging our physical, every part of us is engaged in communion, our heart, our minds, our bodies, our souls. We're going to end the service tonight with communion, so I'm not going to talk much more about it, but that's part of worship. It's a powerful expression and experience of God's presence. And it's a reminder every time we do communion of the gospel. We're supposed to remember what Christ did for us. It's a a demonstration of the gospel and our need for the blood of Christ and our need for salvation and our need for grace and his transcendence and his presence. It's a powerful picture of all that matters. Number four, service as part of worship. I'll just touch on this one for a moment because, again, we're used to thinking of worship as singing and sermons are spiritual and sacraments are spiritual. So okay, we can include that, but service as worship Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Showing love for God's name. Is that not a good summary of what worship is? And he says, God won't overlook showing love for his name. How? In your singing? Yes. In the sacraments? Yes. But here it says, showing love for his name in serving the saints. Service is worship, and God receives it as worship, especially when we serve the least of those, the big five that David just reminded us of. Serving anyone, God takes it as worship, but I think there's a special part when we do it to the least, and it's worship to God. And finally, sacrifice as worship. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sacrifice is spiritual worship. And some of you have sacrificed things in ministry that nobody even knows about. And God receives that as worship just as much as when we were singing with all of our hearts a moment ago god receives it as worship and that's private worship oftentimes because a lot of the times people in ministry sacrifice things nobody else even knows about and sacrifice is a beautiful act of private individual worship to god it kind of when it becomes public and we get praised for it maybe that changes it but when we suffer in private sacrificing and laying down our lives for the sake of the gospel I hope you can begin to see that as worship to the Lord and see that he receives it as worship and he enjoys it as worship. Okay, I'm going to end with this. We're coming to a close. I've said, and you've heard me say, that unfortunately we've seen modern worship as just a few songs we sing before a sermon. And I think we all agree that's worship, that's important. That's a very important part of worship. But that's not all of worship um and i hope nobody misunderstands me and to think that that's not important it is um but to look at it historically the church has seen worship as so much more than that That's always been a part but only a part um when we look back in church history even church architecture and design was itself a message about worship Liturgical churches, post um, or, or pre-Reformation churches, um, Orthodox churches, Catholic churches, uh, even some Lutheran churches that were in the middle of that, um, the altar was the center of the church building, and the pulpit was always on the side. If, you've been, if you go into old cathedrals, the pulpit's always on the side because the center of worship was the sacrament, Okay? that changed with the Reformation and the altar became a side issue and the pulpits are the center I'm not saying that's good or bad I'm not saying one's more biblical than the other that's just history because sacraments are important and sermons are important so it's hard to say which is better there's advantages and disadvantages to both but the Protestant churches that we're descendants of for 500 years now, the pulpit has been the center. But again, in our generation, we've changed everything. Our generation, a lot of times there's not a pulpit because it's cool and hip to preach without one. I'm not cool or hip. And modern churches have become more like concert halls where there's not an altar or a pulpit. Because music has become the center point. Again, I'm just making an observation. Singing is a vital part of worship. But in our modern world, it's become the centerpiece of worship. Sermons are a vital part of worship. In the Protestant churches post Reformation, it became the center point. Sacrament is a powerful part of worship. In the pre Reformation churches, it was a center point. Now, which one should be the center? I'm not I don't know I love it when the sacrament's the center I love it when the sermon's the center I love it when the singing but I just I, I, I don't know but I think whichever one we're in which we're in the modern world today we've got to be aware of what's happened in other times of history and not think that this is just the best or only way to do it we have to embrace every piece of worship but let me talk about ancient architecture in churches for just a moment My son, who's a historian, gave me a book called The Gothic Enterprise. It's not a Christian book, uh, but it's about Gothic cathedrals. Uh, This book was fascinating to me. Robert Scott wrote the book, and he writes about the restoration of Salisbury Cathedral in England. This is Salisbury Cathedral. It was built over 800 years ago. It's a classic example of Gothic architecture. Gothic architecture, it's interesting that they call that the Dark Ages because more than any time in history, they were obsessed with light. Okay, obsessed architecturally with light, and we'll see it in a moment. So I don't understand the whole dark age thing, but medieval is probably a better descriptive of it. Uh, Salisbury Cathedral, 800 years old, it's a classic example of the three aspects of Gothic architecture. Now, we're talking about worship, so follow me, okay? I know some of you architects are dialing in, some of you are going, what the heck? (laughs) We're going to get to (laughs) We're going to get there. The medieval church was obsessed with height and light. And there was a third aspect we'll talk about in a moment. And so there was always, here's an inside picture. If you've been to a Gothic cathedral, whether it's old or modern, the obsession with height, you cannot look down. The whole building was designed to enhance your worship experience, and so when you walk in, you can't. Try to walk in one and not look up. Try it the architects got involved in worship. So you walk in and you just cannot help but to look up. God give us some godly architects today. Sometimes architecture today is designed to confuse us. Let's just let's just channel Picasso into a building. All right, sorry. They were obsessed with height and light. What they did with no electricity. There is not, you could spend a half a million dollars on modern lights in a concert hall and not even come close to what these architects a thousand years ago did with God's light. They positioned the building so that during the worship service, angled perfectly, that the light comes in and hits those stained glass windows and, and it creates. A light show that doesn't need electricity and smoke machines and disco balls. <laughs> we have such a cheap counterfeit today. <laughs> the third element of Gothic architecture was height, light, and the third one was art. These buildings were art museums absolutely amazing art museums from mosaics to paintings to sculptures to that's uh, sadly that's what some of them are today they're just museums and there's not worship going on and this is what i'll close with robert scott writes in this book the gothic enterprise about the restoration work of salisbury cathedral a couple of decades ago You know, an 800-year-old building needs some restoration. And during the restoration of this, a stonemason who was working there named Jenny Jacobs discovered artwork that had never been seen in 800 years. There were intricately designed carvings and art and painting in parts of the cathedral that no one would ever see. On the top of the spears, the highest points... There are carvings and intricate, detailed carvings on the backside of roof shingles. There's amazing artwork that no one has ever seen in 800 years that the artist put in that. You can't see, if we had a close-up, you could see more than life-size statues of the, of the apostles and of different characters in, in the Bible statues all around that are carved out of I don't know marble and other other material they're back carved the back has as much detail as the front but they're shoved against the wall that no one would ever know what's the point the very building of that building was an act of worship It took hundreds of years to build it, and there were things that were done, the masons, the engineers, the architects, the builders, that they intended no one to ever know but God. Why would you spend the time back carving a statue and putting intricate carvings on the bottom side of ceiling tiles and putting beautiful art on the top spears that no one is ever going to see because they did it for God? they did all of life as worship to him but we shortcut everything today we do it for man to see the heart of worship is this are you okay with making great sacrifices and doing your best work and nobody ever notices are you okay with doing something amazing and nobody ever discovers you And only god knows until 800 years later some stonemason now tells the whole world or the whole world the 300 people who read that book (laughs) that's the heart of worship right there is that whether we're singing we're doing it unto god if we're preaching we're doing it unto god if we're serving we do it unto god if we sacrifice we do it unto god whatever we're doing is for his eyes If somebody pats us on the back and says, well done, okay, if they don't, it doesn't matter. If we write a song and it doesn't get recorded and there's not a video of it, it doesn't matter. Because did you do it for that or did you do it for him? Because if we do it for him, it matters to him. That's worship. Lord, help us. In this Word and Spirit Conference, Lord, help us be a people In the same way we passionately worship you in song, may we passionately worship you in service, in work, in sacrifice, in studying, in preaching, in serving, and in everything we do. Lord, this people have, when we sing, Lord, they pour out everything, heart, soul, mind, and strength in song. Lord, help us do that in everything we do as worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.